would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, our passage today is on page 979. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. It's been a few weeks uh, that we've been out of our study of this book. Uh, We took a break for Palm Sunday and Easter, and then Pastor Gordy was preaching last week on Jesus walking on the water. Uh, A few weeks ago, we finished up chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and so we're picking up today in verse 5 of chapter 6, and we'll go down through verse 9. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be at work through your Holy Spirit, helping us to understand your word. We thank you that you caused the Apostle Paul to write these words, that you've preserved them for us to be able to read today. We pray that... You would help us to reflect and see your goodness and grace and mercy, even in some of the very everyday mundane details of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a recent Gallup poll that is being developed. I'm not sure it's completed quite yet, uh, but it's been going on for a number of years. It's a worldwide poll that Gallup is doing, surveying millions of employees in over 200 different countries around the world. And they're polling employees about, specifically, their satisfaction, their contentment in their jobs. 90% of those that were polled say that their work is more a source of of frustration for them than of satisfaction and fulfillment. 85% of those polled say that they are emotionally disconnected from their work and from their workplace. In Japan and China, 94% of those polled said that they are not engaged with their work due to the stress and burnout that they experience. Only 15% of those polled worldwide feel a sense of passion for and deep connection to their work. And 62% said basically they've checked out of their work. They just sleepwalk through their day-to-day activities without giving much focus or energy. Uh, The CEO of Gallup, Jim Clifton, as he was reflecting on the data that they're collecting, said this, six years into our global data collection effort, we may have already found the single most searing, clarifying, helpful, world-altering fact. What the whole world wants is a good job. This is one of the most important discoveries Gallup has ever made. 
Now, this is nothing new. The idea of work has been around a long time. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, God gave work for Adam and Eve to do. It's part of the very fabric of our creation. God created the universe, created all that is created, and then He rested. And that pattern of working for six days and then resting for a day is something that He wove into the very fabric of creation. Gallup, in a sense, was just tapping into the biblical truth that we are created with a desire to work well and to, do a, and to do and to have a good job. But, as we also know very well, ever since Adam and Eve were tempted and gave in to that temptation and fell, our work now is broken. How we work is broken. All affected by the fall. And so we need help. We need to help, help in understanding what the right attitude it is that we should have about our work. What motivation is the right motivation to have. What purpose work is to have in our lives. And so it's not surprising that as Paul was writing a letter to Christians and giving them specific details of how to live the Christian life, that he would address the topic of work. That's what he's doing here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verses 5 through 9. It's been a little while since we jumped into this letter. And so just as a reminder, Paul was writing this letter to a group of Christian people that were in and around the area of Ephesus. And we've looked over previous months of these first three chapters that Paul wrote and how he wrote in these first three chapters, rich, deep theology. What is true about who God is and what he has done? about God's work of redemption for His people, about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, about His grace and His mercy to us through Jesus. And we've looked in chapters 4 through 6 about how Paul transitioned to say, okay, now you know what is true, all these wonderful deep theological truths. Now I want you to understand what it is you're to do in response, how you are to live as a Christian in this world. A few weeks ago, we began to look at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 as Paul got very detailed in what uh, some scholars refer to as the household codes. We looked at husbands and wives and how they are to work together in the context of the family. We looked at parents and children three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and, and looking at how parents and children are to relate to one another in the family. And now he comes to this uh, issue of uh, of bosses and workers, of servants and masters, to explain how it is they are to live out their Christian theology in their work. Now, I, before we jump into that, I don't want us to skip over the fact that Paul is talking about servants, or could be translated slaves and masters. We need to have some context in order to understand what's going on here. I think it's obvious to you already in terms of what I've already said that I'm going to suggest to you that this directly applies in terms of our work, in terms of being employees and being employers. But I don't want us to just jump to that before we get into the understand at least a little bit about the context of what's happening here as Paul's writing in the first century and what he is speaking about. 
I recognize that for most of us, it's almost impossible for us to hear the words servants or slaves and masters and not to think of what was happening here in this country in the 18th and 19th centuries or what has happened around the world in various European colonization programs that was happening in Africa and other places. But the scholars, as they've looked at what was happening in the first century, in particular the Greco-Roman idea of servanthood, They've understood that there's something radically different going on in the first century than what we've experienced here in this country in the 18th and the 19th centuries. For one, the servanthood that's being described here in the first century in the Greco-Roman culture almost never was based on race. It also was something that wasn't almost ever for a lifetime. Oftentimes it went until the person turned about the age of 30 and then they would be released from their servanthood. It also was something that uh, the first century slaves came from all different kinds of social statuses and economic backgrounds and educational levels. Many of them had put themselves into servanthood in order to pay off their debts or even as a pathway to get citizenship. Now, it's certainly the case that in the first century, servants were not always treated well and sometimes were abused. And there were some that treated them as if they weren't actually people. They treated them without the dignity that they deserve simply because they're made in the image of God. But the scholars have shown that that's not predominantly what was happening in the institution that Paul's addressing here in Ephesians or Colossians or in Philemon. That helps to make a little bit more sense of why Paul doesn't just start telling the slaves to revolt, to to go out against their masters or condemning slavery outright. The context is much more similar to what we think of as our vocations and our work. And so Paul's writing to them in that context and he's telling them as Christians how they are to live as godly workers, godly bosses. And one other thing that I think is important to note, when the horrors of the institution of slavery as we saw it here in this country in the 18th and 19th century and what we've seen in European colonization around the world, when people rose up against those horrific things that were happening and brought an end to it, It was largely evangelical Christian believers that were at the forefront of that. Quakers, Roman Catholic believers, and their basis of speaking out against it was God's word. What God's word says about the dignity of every single human being because they're made in the image of the creator. Today, Paul is giving us some instructions here in Ephesians 6 that relate to our work as workers, as bosses, as employees, as employers. And I want you to reflect on this reality that almost every single one in the, every single one of us in this room functions in both of those roles throughout our days and throughout our lifetimes. You may be in a role, in a vocation, where you are over a number of employees, but you're also an employee yourself. Uh, As students, God's called you to be working. That's your primary job as a young person to work and to learn and to be a good student. But I want you to think of it this way as well. Every time you go to a restaurant, every time you go to a store, every time you go to the gas station, every time you go to the movie theater, there are people that are working for you in a sense. 
and you are their employers as a sense. So all of us function in all of these roles all the time, back and forth. So what does Paul say about what it means to be gospel-centered workers and gospel-centered bosses? Well, he begins by talking about gospel-centered workers. He covers that in verses 5 through 8. And what does he tell them is to be their responsibility? What is, what is it that they are supposed to do? He gets at it at the beginning of verse 5. Bond servants or servants, obey your earthly masters. And again at the beginning of verse 7, rendering service. There's his command. Obey your earthly masters and render service. Obey and serve, Paul says. Now, of course, that's the command, but all these questions start coming up into our minds. What does that look like? To what extent? What about if this situation? What about in that situation? And so Paul gets specific and he begins to describe how, as workers, we are to obey and to serve. And what does he say in verse 5? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. In other words... We are to do our work respectfully. What he's talking about here is not being afraid of our employers, of our bosses. But the word here has more of a sense of doing it in respect and honor and reverence to those that are over us. That is, there is to be no insubordination. There is to be no misconduct, no lack of cooperation, whether... Outwardly or even more subtly and behind the scenes. There should be no disrespect. There should be no unjust criticism. There shouldn't be inappropriate sarcasm. That is, we are to be respectful. He goes on in verse 5 to say something else. Obey and serve how? In verse 5, not only with fear and trembling, but also with a sincere heart. Literally that phrase is translated singleness of heart. That we are to be sincere, we are to be genuine in our work. To work with an undivided mind, to work wholeheartedly, with integrity, without hypocrisy and without ulterior motives. We are to be sincere and genuine in how we serve. Respectfully, sincerely, but also in verse 6, he goes on to say something else. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. It is interesting. That's, a, that's almost a direct phrasing of how he said it to the Colossians as well. It must have been something that was so uh, evident in, in those church cultures that he had to specifically address it in exactly the same way. And what he's saying here is that we ought to be conscientious in how we do our work and how we serve. Not just doing a good job when, our, when the eyes of our supervisors are on us. Not just doing a good job when our boss is going to be evaluating us. Or when our boss's boss is coming into the office. Not just doing a good job with our studies when we know our parents are going to be checking it. Or talking to our teachers. Paul says, no. You are to do it conscientiously. Not just to get the attention of those over you, but to work hard and faithfully and to do your very best all the time. Even when no one's looking at you. Because as he's going to say in a moment, somebody is always watching you. Respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously. And then in the end of verse 6, the beginning of verse 7, 
He gives them another how if they are to obey and serve. He says at the end of verse 6 that they are to do the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. That they are to do their service willingly and with a good attitude. Not grudgingly, not reluctantly, not half-heartedly, but with a good will, with a good attitude, with an eagerness, with a zeal to serve well and to serve faithfully. That's how you're to obey and to serve respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously and willingly and with a good attitude. But what does Paul tell them about why? He gives them two motivations. The first, I think, is the most important The most important motivation is because ultimately, when you're serving your earthly masters, you're serving Jesus. Did you notice that Jesus Jesus shows up in every verse? Look again at verse verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but... As bond servants, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And then in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. He mentions Jesus in every verse to underscore your motivation, your primary motivation for being a good worker is that you are serving Jesus ultimately. First century servants would have been motivated by many things. Food, clothing, other benefits that they might get, getting out of debt, freedom, citizenship. And Paul says all of those things are legitimate things for you to be motivated about, but they're not to be your primary motivation. Your primary motivation is to be that you love Jesus. That you want to serve Him well because of how He has served you. That you would love Him and serve Him because He has loved you and served you well. So, in our work, we're to do it respectfully and with reverence and sincerely and genuinely and with integrity. Doing our very best all of the time with a willing and good attitude and eagerness. Why? Not because we want to get a promotion, not because we want to earn more money, not because we want to be thought well of, not because we want to have some better reputation. All of those are okay things to pursue, but our ultimate motivation must be that we love the Lord and we want to serve Him. That's true whether you are a student or you're working with patients or you're dealing with a supervisor or you're answering questions of customers and clients, or you're dealing with city officials and county officials, your most important motivation is that by serving your earthly masters well, you are serving the Lord. He gives them another motivation, as if that wasn't enough. In verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Whatever good we do in our work, regardless of whether it is seen and and given recognition by our earthly bosses, he says, also know that as you serve faithfully, as you serve well, the Lord sees it. 
and he will give good back to you. Now, Paul doesn't describe what that is. He doesn't give us any specifics. But here's what we know. It comes from the Lord and it's good. And that's another motivation for us. Not only because we love Jesus and want to serve him, but also because God promises that he'll respond by giving us good things. So that's what he says to the workers. They are to obey and to serve their earthly masters respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, willingly and with a good attitude because of the fact that they're serving the Lord that they love. And also because they know that the Lord will see them and will give them good things as a result. But what does he say to the bosses? He only gives them one verse. It's verse 9. But there's a lot packed into that verse. And just as a reminder... I think this verse applies to all of us as well, maybe literally in our vocations, but also when we go to places like restaurants or stores or serve in some leadership capacity. And what does he tell the, the, the bosses, the employers that they are to do? Masters, he says, do the same to them. In other words, what does that mean? He's saying treat them as they are being told to treat you with respect and sincerity, being genuine and being conscientious with how you treat them to do it with a willing and good attitude toward them. And notice that he throws in something else at the end of verse nine as well. He says, stop threatening them. It must have been a problem in the first century. It surely was in terms of how servants were treated. But it also must have been a problem in the Ephesian church. And he says, as employers, as those you have uh, authority over, stop threatening them. Stop being bullies. Stop treating them with fear and intimidation to try to get them to do what you want them to do. In essence, what he's saying is treat them like you would want to be treated. Like Jesus said in Matthew 7, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's how they're supposed to respond. What motivation does he give them for doing that? Why does he tell them that they should act this way? Well, it's at the end of verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Yes, Bosses, you might be the master of the people that are under you, but you need to understand that you are both servants of the ultimate master. That's your motivation. That even as employers, even as bosses, even as those who have other leadership responsibilities, you too are accountable to the same ultimate master and Lord. Your attitudes and your actions should reflect your love For the Lord. The Lord doesn't show partiality. The Lord isn't prejudiced, thankfully. And so neither should you, he says. In other words, the motivation that he gives to the employers and to the bosses is the same as that he gives to the workers, to the employees. Love the Lord. Think of his love and his faithfulness and his goodness and his grace towards you. How that has impacted your life and let that change how you then live as an employer, as a boss. What you believe, what you know is true, should change how you live. So this is what he says both to workers as well as bosses. Obey and serve your boss, your employer, 
respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, willingly, and with a good attitude because you are doing, by doing that, you are serving the Lord. And the Lord is watching you and will respond to your faithfulness. And if you're given responsibility over others, whether in some formal way or an informal way, you do the same to them. Treat them with respect and sincerity and be genuine and conscientious with them and don't threaten them. And do that because you're all serving the ultimate same master. Now, before we finish, I want to think about some of the implications of what Paul's saying here. This perspective about work is, this Christian perspective of work is unique and encouraging. It brings freedom, it brings hope, it brings power, it brings motivation. So that when you get up in the morning and go into your work, go into your vocation, go into your calling as a student, go into your calling in some leadership role, your lives ought to be different because of what Paul's saying here about this Christian idea of work. Before I give you a couple implications here, let me just give you a couple resources. This, this touches on our lives so significantly in so many ways, particularly in this town. That maybe you want to dig a little deeper. Maybe you want to read something together with a small group or even yourself. Dig a little deeper. A couple of resources for you to look into. One's a little book by Tom Nelson called Work Matters. He gets into some of these very things. A second resource is by Tim Keller called Every, Every Good Endeavor. Now, both of those books, at times, we have at the book wall. I can't promise you that they're there today, but they will be over a period of time as we get additional copies. And then there's a third one that I just heard about. One of my seminary professors at Covenant Seminary, Dan Doriani, just published a book on work. I don't even know what the title is, but I've been told it's really good. So that's a third resource you could look into and use to dig a little deeper. But think about these implications of what Paul is saying here about this Christian perspective or worldview about work. The first is this. Work has value. Work is not a curse. Now I understand that the Bible talks about the fact that our work is impacted by the fall. And is dealing with the effects of the fall. It has curses because of that. But that is different than saying that, our, that work is a curse. The idea of work being a curse traces its roots back to all kinds of unbiblical ideas. One of the early ones is actually a time period around when this was written, a little bit before that even, Greco-Roman world, in particular the, the Greco-mythology world. It was the whole idea of Pandora's box. You know what Pandora's box is. We use that phrase sometimes now. We don't necessarily connect it back to the mythology. But if we talk about opening Pandora's box, what are we talking about? We're talking about something that we're going to do or something that's going to be done or said that's going to open up all of these negative consequences. All of these hard, bad, evil things are going to come up or come out because of something that's done or said. Sometimes we refer to it as opening a can of worms. It all traces back to the myth of Pandora, this, this mythical person that had this jar or this box and in it contained wonderful things like hope and love but it also contained things like sickness and death and I won't go over the entire myth but at one point 
Pandora's box is opened up and all of these bad things come out, sickness and death. And just as the good things are about to come out, the box is slammed shut so that only the bad things come out. And do you know, do you know what one of those things was that was in that box? Work. It was viewed as being something bad, something evil, something negative. That's not the Bible's perspective about work. The Bible's perspective about work is completely different. Work is something that is good. It is something that has value. It's something that is given to us by God. It has value and dignity. It was given to God's people in the garden before there was sin, before there was brokenness. He created us for work and then He created the work for us to do. It's meant to be meaningful and to be fulfilling for us. Although now we have to deal with thorns in our work, for sure. We're still intended to see work as having significance and value because it's from God. And so what that means, brothers and sisters in Christ, is there is no little work. There's no such difference between sacred work and secular work. All work is sacred. Because it is God's work that He has given us to do. And we can glorify Him and honor Him and serve Him as we do it for His glory. And so what that means is the work that you do Monday through Saturday is no less important than what I'm doing here at this very moment. Your work is that important. Yes, it's going to have thorns. Yes, it's been impacted by the fall. Yes, it's not always going to be enjoyable. It's not always going to be easy, but it's important. It's a calling from the Lord for you. Don't ever feel like your work is unimportant. And don't ever look down on anybody else because you think their work is less significant than yours. Another implication of what Paul's saying here is not only that our work has value, but that our work is not meant to be our identity. This point is not lost on me this week. In other words, what I'm saying to you is your pastors are not exempt from this temptation of trying to find our identity in our work. I woke up this past Monday morning with the head and chest cold nastiness that's been going around. I had a week planned of activities and meetings and things that needed to be done. And very little of it happened the way that I intended and that I wanted it to happen. God has a sense of humor knowing that I was thinking about these very things about work and laying me down so that I couldn't work in the way that I thought that I needed to. It's right. It's good for us to find meaning and purpose and dignity in the work that God gives us to do. But it is never meant to be the place that we find our ultimate identity. Our work is not an end in itself. It's a, a way that we bring about the glory of God in His creation. One of the best illustrations that I think of when I think of this idea of finding our identity in work is one that we've used here many times at Trinity. The, the, the movie Chariots of Fire and the story that that tells about Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Eric Little, a very committed Christian man, 
believed he was called to be a missionary to China and eventually would end up serving as a missionary in China. But he also believed that, he, that God made him a runner. And at one point as he was speaking to his sister, he says, The Lord has made me fast. And when I run, I feel the Lord's pleasure. I feel the, the smile of God as I run and as I serve Him using this ability for His glory. And that's contrasted with another of the main figures in the movie, Harold Abrams, who's not a Christian man, also a very gifted runner. And he says something along the lines of that when he's in the, the stocks ready to run the sprint, that when the gun goes off, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Do you see the contrast between those two mindsets, between those two worldviews? God has gifted me. He has given me the ability to run fast. And when I run for his glory, I feel his pleasure. I feel the satisfaction of God's smile upon me. I'm fulfilled. I feel the significance of what I'm doing. Versus when I do this job that I'm called to do, maybe even that I'm gifted to do, I've got that much time to try to justify my existence, to prove my worth, to show my significance, to find my ultimate identity. You are not your work. You are a daughter or a son of King Jesus. And He has called and gifted you for work that He has given to you to do. And He calls you to do it because in doing it, you will know the pleasure of your Savior. If work is your identity, or if you're just working for money or for recognition, then eventually you're going to burn out. You'll be crushed under the weight of it and ultimately not be a very good employee. One last implication. For you, if you are on the boss side of the spectrum, if you're an employer side of the spectrum, if you have some kind of uh, leadership role in some formal or informal way, whether in ministry or in some other vocation, there's no way around what Paul says here in verse 9 about how you are to be treating those that are under you. You are to be treating them with kindness and respect and dignity as employees or workers. That's true if you literally employ others as you serve as their boss or supervisor, manager or leader in some way. But it's also true for all of us when we go to places like restaurants or the grocery store or we get a hotel room or we go to a movie theater. Technically, in all of those situations, you are employing other people to serve you. How do you treat them? What Paul's saying here applies into that situation as well. Paul says that we are to obey and to serve those that we work for, our earthly masters and bosses, to do it respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, with a willing and good heart. If we're an employer, if we're a boss, to treat our employees the same way and to not threaten them with intimidation. And all that we should do, whether we are employers or employees, workers or bosses, it's because we're serving the Lord. That we love the Lord. That we ought to see value in our work, but never to seek our identity in it. Let's pray together.
Father, work uh, touches so many different aspects of all of our lives. So I pray, Father, that as we meditate on these very important words that you caused to be written down so long ago, that you would help us to be encouraged, but also help us to be motivated this week, whether as workers, employees, or as bosses, employers. Help us to live the way that Paul is calling us to live because we want to serve you well. We want to love you because of how you have worked for us. Do this for your glory, the building up of your church and your kingdom, and also for the good of all your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of our service and we come to the Lord's table, we're given a visual picture of the work that Jesus did, that he was born into this world as one of us, taking on our nature. That he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That he lived a life of perfect love and perfect obedience to his Father. And then he willingly went to the cross, his greatest work, to offer his life as a sacrifice. So that those who would believe in him, those who would trust in him, would have everlasting acceptance and eternal life without ever having to work for it. Because we're resting and trusting in the work of Jesus for us. As he takes our sin upon himself. As he credits his righteousness to our accounts. All through faith and by grace. Jesus also would go on later and remind his disciples as he was hanging on the cross. That the work that he did in redemption was finished. It was completed. It was perfect. It was done. But he also reminded his disciples that he had more work that he was doing. That he was going to return and when he did, all things would be made in subjection under him. And he promises even in this passage that he would wait to partake in the fruit of the vine until that day when he could do it with him, with his disciples together in the kingdom of his father. So that's an encouragement to us that we recognize the finished, completed work of Jesus to redeem us eternally. But we also recognize Jesus is still at work as our advocate. And one day he is coming back. And we hold on to that promise. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are finding your rest in him. Not seeking to work to earn your salvation or his acceptance, but resting in Jesus' work for you. And you have publicly professed your faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes the Bible is God's word. Then as the elements come around to you, eat and drink. Be reminded of this wonderful visual picture of Jesus' work for us, but also be encouraged as the Holy Spirit takes what we're doing and strengthens us so that as we go out this week, we can serve Him the way He calls us to in faithfulness. So let's pause and let's thank Him for giving us this table and ask Him to use it for this purpose. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this means of grace. We thank You for this visual picture of Jesus' work for us. We pray that as we eat and drink in faith, that you would strengthen us. And we pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.